Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Onelin Zinzi, Tabiso Lohoko and Figile Limwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, South African Commission hears evidence related to state security agency. United States joins list of countries banning travelers from South Africa. In economics news, USA pledges to assist Botswana fight COVID-19. And in sports news, the IOC says Tokyo Olympic Games will go ahead as planned. But first up the news with Onelinsens. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Lulu. The World Health Organization's chief, Pedro Cabresis, says they're working on accelerating the rollout of vaccines in Africa to save lives and get their economies back on track. Cabresis says it is every nation's economic interest to support vaccine equity. The WHO's chief has stressed the importance of working with developed economies to assist African countries roll out the vaccines. The world stood on the brink of a catastrophic moral failure if it doesn't deliver equitable access to vaccines. It would be an economic failure. A new report from the International Labour Organization finds that 8.8% of global working hours were lost last year, resulting in a decline in global labour income equivalent to $3.7 trillion. Until we end the pandemic everywhere, we won't end it anywhere. I spoke to President Ramaphosa of South Africa, and on Wednesday, I will be speaking with ministers from the African Union. I will tell them that we're doing everything we can to accelerate the rollout of vaccines in Africa to save lives and get their economies back on track. Kenya has written to the African Union, raising security concerns after Somalia's federal and regional forces renewed fighting at an area called Bulahawa in Gedo region near Mandera County in the northern border with Somalia. In the letter sent to the AU on Monday, Kenya expressed fears that the latest fighting was likely to create a security crisis for Kenya, considering the two countries no longer have diplomatic relations. The Somali Foreign Ministry has, however, released a statement accusing Kenya of arming militias responsible for the attack. Sarah Kimani reports. At least 11 people were killed in the fighting between the Somali Federal Army and Jubaland State Forces in the Gido region of southwestern Somalia. In its diplomatic note to the African Union, Kenya said it was concerned that the renewed fighting would lead to large-scale displacement of civilians inside Somalia and generate large numbers of refugees and asylum seekers to Kenya, therefore aggravating the already dire humanitarian situation and in the refugee camps in Kenya. The fighting precedes an election in Somalia next month and comes amid deteriorating diplomatic relations between Kenya and Somalia. 
The Ugandan presidential candidate Bobby Wine has pleaded with the African Union's chair president, Sir Ramaphosa, and the East African community to call the country's president, Yoro Museveni, to order. In a video message, Wine has accused the president of using the security forces to suppress human rights. Wine and his wife have been under house arrest since the country went to the polls on the 14th of this month. He says soldiers and police continue to surround his home despite a court order telling them to leave leave. It is clear that General Museveni is continuously using the military and the police in a partisan manner to oppress his opponents and to suppress all our human rights. We continue to call upon the world leaders to hold General Museveni to account, to call him to order, to ensure that our rights are respected. My appeal to the regional and continental bodies, the East African community and the African Union is to intervene in this matter. Sierra Leone's capital, Freetown, has been placed into a two-week lockdown starting on Monday as the government revises measures to contain the second wave of the COVID-19 pandemic. Sierra Leone remains one of the countries least hit by the pandemic in terms of both cases and fatalities. Government, however, says a steady rise in new cases since December has necessitated a review of the measures. The current measures will be reviewed after two weeks. By Sunday, Sierra Leone had recorded 3,139 confirmed COVID-19 cases and 77 deaths. Lastly, Zimbabwe's government spokesperson has apologized for describing doctors as medical assassins following the coronavirus-related deaths of senior members of the ruling ZANU-PF party. Nick Mangwana says he withdrew the remarks and is sorry for any offensive causes. His initial comment had sparked outrage in the medical profession, the BBC's Andrew Harding reports. It was a breathtaking reminder of Zimbabwe's poisonous political climate. The government's spokesman, Nick Mangwana, took to Twitter to suggest that medical assassins might be responsible for the deaths of several politicians. Some Zimbabweans have noted that because of lockdown restrictions, the country's political elites are no longer able to rush abroad to seek medical treatment, as former President Robert Mugabe once did so routinely. Instead, Zimbabwe's rulers are now obliged, mid-pandemic, to depend on a health system which they stand accused of breaking. Channel Africa News, I am SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms on Facebook, Channel Africa One, on Twitter, at Channel Africa One, and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. It's 7.07 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. 
A former chairperson of the high-level review panel into the state capture into the state security agency in South Africa, Sydney Mufamadi, has painted a disturbing picture of the country's security agency over the last 10 years. Testifying at the state capture commission, Mufamadi said that there had been politicization and factionalization of the intelligence community fueled by power struggles in the ruling ANC. The panel was appointed by President Sul Ramaphosa in 2018 to investigate whether the state security agency was conducting itself as a professional national service. Busichimombe reports. Former chairperson of the high-level review panel into the state security agency, Sidney Mufamadi, spoke of an agency which was a law unto itself. Following a probe of the years 2008 to 2018, Mufamadi says the panel found that many of the operations undertaken by the unit were unconstitutional and illegal. That unit was a law unto itself. That is relative to the management structures of uh, the SSA. Because they were not reporting, uh, following the the reporting line. Um, From what we were told, uh, some of the senior, more senior people than uh, Lomo, for instance, would say we were not getting reports from the special operations. We were told that, you know, we report as special operations to the executive and therefore we can't report to you. Mufamadi says former President Jacob Zuma's 2009 proclamation merging the country's intelligence institutions enabled wrongdoing. The SSA, he says, was deeply involved in ANC factional battles. He cited a report by an agency operative boasting about efforts to thwart the then Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa's presidential campaign at the party's January 8th birthday in Rustenburg in 2016 and at the State of the Nation address in that same year. Then it also says during the February 2016 State of the Nation address, the unit was, quote, able to infiltrate and penetrate the leadership structure of the Zuma Must Fall movement. The initial Zuma Must Fall indicated that more than 5,000 people would embark on parliament. But with efficient and effective countering actions and the dissemination of disinformation to supporters of Zuma Must Fall, only appropriately 50 Zuma Must Fall supporters attended the march. According to Mufamadi, former state security minister David Mahlobo passed on millions of rands between 2015 and 2017 from the SSA to Zuma. He says the panel was told this by an SSA official the panel interviewed in the course of its work. The um, person who gave this information uh, was saying, yes, I'm certain that the money was given to Minister Mashlobo, but I cannot prove that it was received by President Zuma. But was uh, his evidence before your, your panel that the understanding in the money being given to Minister Mashlobo that he would pass it on to President Zuma, was that... Yes, he, un- uh, was that he understood that this was the final destination. 
Zuma is also alleged to have used the SSA's monies for his personal benefit, including VIP protection for his advanced traveling teams, establishing a toxicology unit to taste his food and drink, and maintaining his wife, Mantuli, to the tune of 5.2 million rands a year. The SSA was also a money pit, according to Mfamadi, with the Auditor General forced to automatically issue a qualified audit of the agency every year. He gave the example of the AG's report of 2017-2018 on the SSA. During the audit, management was unable to provide documentation to verify operational expenditure of 125.6 million or that the money was used for the intended purpose. The AG was unable to confirm redundant assets in excess of 9 billion rand as there was insufficient audit evidence and the assets could, quote, not be located by the agency, close quote. He was unable to confirm the reported irregular expenditure of 31.3 million as stated in the financial statements. Fingers have been pointed at the agency's management for poor controls and failure to hold employees accountable. The testimony of SSA Acting Director General Luiso Jafta will be heard on Tuesday. That report by Busi Chimombe. South Africa's Independent Electoral Commission is expected to publish the final regulations for the Political Party Funding Act, which President Cyril Ramaphosa has signed into law. The Act regulates public and private funding of political parties and it also requires that donations be disclosed by parties and donors to the Electoral Commission. It also prohibits donations to parties by foreign governments or agencies. Civil society organization My Vote Counts, which took legal action to ensure that the bill was signed into law, has welcomed the signing of the Act. The organization's spokesperson, Shailene Clark, says the act will deepen citizens' ability to exercise their political rights from an informed position. Um, yes, of course, my account, we, we, our organization started many years ago. We started with the sole focus of trying to uncover the private and public uh, funding of political parties because there were no transparency. Um, because we felt that um, this transparency in knowing who funds our political parties is crucial in, in upholding our, our constitutional democracy, um, in our right, um, our constitutional right to access the information. So we are really happy that this has finally been promulgated. Um, we've never had any legislation of this kind before, before political parties could get money um, from whoever, um, which obviously opens up uh, the doors to corruption, which we unfortunately have been seeing over the years in, in South Africa. We are plagued by corruption, which then makes South Africans feel as though they cannot really trust our politicians. Um, so we are really, really happy that this uh, is finally um, leading us to to a more a more open, a more transparent um, democracy. Of course, civil society organizations have been critical about the time it took to promulgate this act. Do you think if it was signed much earlier, it would have made uh, much of a difference? Look, if we had this legislation years ago, we would not have had a need for the state capture inquiry. That's, 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 that, is just, that is just a fact. Um, the act was halfway signed um, in 2019, 
um, but the president failed to promulgate the the, the date for, for implementation. If he had done that, we would have had um, this act um, in effect in time for the 2019 elections. Um, so we've missed that window. Uh, we are heading into the LGE, so we know that the IEC will be was mandated to administer this. Um, they are ready um, to to get this information and to make it accessible to us. Um, so it is unfortunate that the president uh, took almost two years to sign this, but we are very happy that he did. Just in terms of the loopholes that some have identified in this act, do you think the other bill, the Promotion of Access to Information Act, which Ramaphosa has yet to sign, will plug the loopholes that have been identified in the act? Um, yes, so in the PPFA, there are loopholes, like for instance, the 100,000 rand thresholds for disclosure are too high. Uh, but again, for us, the main thing is that this has been implemented so that we can actually really see how things work, where best we can, or how best we can plug the current loopholes. Um, the Pyre Amendment Act that you just mentioned, uh, once that is promulgated, it would further strengthen um, transparency in that the PPFA, which was signed, mandates political parties to disclose their um, financial information to the IEC, right? And they will administer, they will record and preserve party funding um, um, disclosures um, in our country and also to make available to South Africans. Once PIA is promulgated, that will mandate political parties to give, to put this information on their social media websites and their um, uh, websites as well, uh, which will then further give us the access to this information, which is our constitutional right. Now, how significant is it, Shailen, uh, that uh, foreign governments or agencies are no longer allowed to make donations to parties under this act? Um, look, imagine, um, I imagine I'm the South African government. You are a foreign government. You give me money, um, but then I must maybe do something for you, which really can... Ha- really spell disaster for our democracy. It really can uh, um, spell disaster for communities. So that's obviously the biggest the biggest thing um, uh, from this Political Party Funding Act is that now parties are no longer um, allowed to get money from your Russia, from your US, from your UK, only if it's for skills development, though, um, and training. But of course, it's it's very significant. You know, money speaks. Eh, corruption really is is really corrodes, especially like the South African political system. And the PPFA will really help. It, it won't change things overnight, but it is better that we have this now, something to work with, and something that we can work towards cleaning up corruption and mitigating further corruption. That's uh, Shailene Clark, spokesperson for South Africa's civil society organization My Vote Counts, speaking to Kumbela Munjelele. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kulta Njoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka.
in Yaoundé. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. It's 7.19 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. U.S. President Joe Biden is set to impose a ban on most non-U.S. citizens traveling to America from South Africa in a bid to contain the spread of a new variant of COVID-19. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention told the Reuters news agency that the restrictions will take effect from Saturday. Kate Fisher reports from Washington. Travellers from South Africa now join a long list of countries, including Brazil, Ireland, the UK and 26 countries in Europe. Now, this new ban overturns an order that President Trump made when he was still in office that had lifted those restrictions. The CDC's uh, principal director, Dr Anne Shushat, told Reuters that South Africa had been added because of the concerning variant present that has already spread beyond South Africa. And she said the measures were in place to protect Americans, but also to reduce the risk of these variants spreading across the world and worsening the current pandemic. Now, the CDC has said it's not um, saying that it won't put this ban on more countries in the future as well. In a White House press briefing, which have now started to become a daily occurrence here in Washington, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is President Biden's chief medical officer and the leading infectious diseases expert here in the US, he spoke to reporters and he told them that at the moment he does not believe the South African variant is here in the US. But he acknowledged that their level of surveillance had not been what he would have liked it to have been. So they continue to be extremely vigilant and uh, really are looking to detect if it is here. But so far, he has no information to suggest that it is. Now, Joe Biden has said that combating coronavirus, getting a handle on it is his number one priority for his new job. And he's taken aggressive actions to do this. And this travel ban is yet another one. He's already signed a range of executive orders since he took office just last Wednesday. And his promise is to administer 100 million vaccines in his first 100 days in office. So this travel ban is perhaps no surprise given his aggressive stance on all of this. Some health officials, though, are concerned that the vaccines that are being used here in the US may not be sufficient to protect against this new variant from South Africa. But today, Moderna, who is one of the drug companies who is uh, licensed to sell their vaccine here in the US, it says that its vaccine will protect individuals against this strain from South Africa and against the strain from uh, Britain. Uh, It says, however, as a precaution, it is now working on a separate vaccine to specifically target the South African variant. But for now, it remains that if you are in South Africa and you are not a US citizen, you will not be able to enter the United States. Kate Fisher, SABC News, Washington. 
Kigali has just entered the second week of its total lockdown, but two major events have also kicked off. The government has introduced door-to-door food supply to those people whose jobs have been affected. Government has also introduced village-level pilot mass testing for COVID-19 amongst all elderly people above 70, as well as those with chronic diseases. This has also been introduced to identify the extent of the disease in Kigali. Silvanas Karamera reports from The move is taking place across Kigali city and it aims at supporting those families whose sources of income have been heavily dependent on the daily casual activities. They include public motor riders, small-scale vendors of a wide range of commodities and most of others working in informal sector without working contracts, food stuff such as maize flour, rice, beans and cooking oils have also been handed over to these families. Some of beneficiaries had this to say. I am no longer getting out for work. I have had this problem of lack of enough food at home because I don't have a job. But it is fine now that we have gotten this food early enough. I particularly thank our government such an important decision of reaching out to us and support us in this unprecedented period of time. I live with my child who has just finished secondary school education. She doesn't have a job. Neither do I. Therefore, getting food has been a challenge. But I thank the government for this support. Local authorities, leaders have been assigned with supplying the food stuff equitably and the city authorities maintains that no one with a need should be left behind. Beneficiaries are also selected based on the severity of lack of food in their homes after an assessment by local leaders. We have identified people in need. We have people's names, their telephone numbers, and their locations. In order to avoid the spread of COVID-19, we visit everyone and supply them with food without necessarily calling them here at the sector headquarters. We do this through our youthful volunteers. And so far, everything is fine. Some of areas in Kigali, however, have seen no supply for one week since the process began. And those in need say it's high time authorities intervene. We have been registered by local leaders, but we have never received any support. We no longer get out for work. We stay indoors and nothing remains for our consumption. We are still waiting. In most parts of the city, activities are carried out in front of city leaders. Kigali City Mayor Pudan Sulwinjisa says delivering foodstuff is an ongoing process, insisting all people in need will get this support. We have so far registered about 69,000 families in need, and this is the beginning. We have enough food supply to feed all those in need. We therefore call upon all that in case we seem to delay to reach out to them, uh, their need arise, they can call us. It is just a volunteering act, which also serves as a sensitization to protect people against COVID-19 pandemic. Meanwhile, Rwanda's Minister of Health has introduced the mass testing against COVID-19 pandemic to elderly people above 70 years old. Also, people with chronic diseases have also been testing free of charge from all parts of the capital Kigali, the government says the ambitious move ascertaining the extent to which the pandemic has hit Kigali so far. Silvanus Kalimera reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali.
Many South Africans have resorted to steaming using hot water, herbs and mixtures of Western medicine and oils to fight COVID-19 infections. Some believe this could cure or kill the virus, while on the other hand, medical practitioners have warned of possible adverse outcomes in some cases. Fennel Schumer reports. Over 40,000 people have succumbed to the coronavirus since March 2020 in South Africa. Fatality rates are on the increase despite the country being placed on a national lockdown to curb the spread of the virus. But for some, drinking mixture of lemon, ginger, garlic and honey has become part of the goal to remedy and prevent infection as well as to cure the virus. Helga Jeskem resorted to the method of steaming to fight the infection after testing positive for the virus in June last year. Yes, like you said, I had COVID and um, I'm a physiotherapist myself. So we often work with nebulizers, which is basically the same principle as steaming to help relieve lung symptoms. So for me personally, when I had COVID, there were two things. One of them was steaming um, that really helped to just open up the airways more that I could feel that oxygen just gets better into my lungs again and also rehydrate, which is a very strange little thing, but it also just helped the hydration of my body to recover better. Unlike Jaskem, some have now resorted to steaming using different oils and traditional herbs. She says people can apply different methods for steaming, but should do so with extra caution. So I actually added a chamomile tea bag, <laughs> which is something that had come from sort of childhood, um, or sometimes a essential oil um, that I added into the water so that I had something extra um, to the water. But I did it with just water a couple of times too, and both of them um, relieved a lot of the symptoms that I was experiencing. Dr. Emmanuel Taban, a pulmonologist at a Pretoria private hospital, has seen over 700 COVID-19 patients since the outbreak of the pandemic. He says although the recovery rate is satisfying, he's skeptical about the accuracy of the fatality numbers. He touches on the advantages and disadvantages of steaming to fight the infections. I think the advantage of uh, steaming that has been used quite for a number of years was actually loosen your mucus plug and open up your airway. That's really the advantage. Disadvantage that, of course, it can irritate your airway and can lead to the underlying what we call Lafayette pneumonia. With the, with the dose, depends what you use, of course. Let's say you're using Vicks and you're using for a long time, you will have lung involvement with the Vicks. Means the Vicks, the fats drop to your lung and the body is unable to eliminate it. And then you end forming what you call like the pneumonia, but it's non-infected pneumonia. And that's a disadvantage. So people must be using it very carefully. Dr. Taban, who's become well known for his novel methods in the treatment of COVID-19 patients, says most admitted to hospital don't need to be put on a ventilator. 81% of people with COVID-19 have mild to no symptoms at all. So these people can actually isolate at home, hydrate properly, and monitor their saturation at home with no problems. However, this small number of population people, about 40, about 4% to 5%, that will have a severe disease that might need an oxygen supplement. These are people that need to go to the hospital. And these are people that end up in the normal ward if they require less than four liters of oxygen or in high care when they require a bit high degree of oxygen or those who need 
mechanical ventilations when they needed high level of oxygen. The lung specialist has been hailed by some for saving the lives of critically ill ventilator patients with his use of therapeutic bronchoscopies. He says those steaming may help relieve congestion. It doesn't cure or kill the virus from the patient. Over 1.4 million people have tested positive for the virus in South Africa, with just over 1.2 million having recovered. Fanuel Schuma, Pretoria. Our headlines up next with Onelin Tinti. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Kenya has raised security concerns with the African Union after Somalia's federal and regional forces renewed fighting on its northern border with Somalia. The South African Prisoners' Organizations for Human Rights has lashed out at the Department of Correctional Services following an almost 4,000 count of inmates having been infected with the coronavirus. And Russian President Vladimir Putin has described protesters who gathered against Russia last week in support of the jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny as terrorists. Channel Africa News, I am Onelin Sinzi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Onele. South Africa's President Sil Ramaphosa has confirmed that the country will receive its first shipment of COVID-19 vaccines from India very soon. New Delhi has allowed the commercial export of vaccines and a shipment is expected to arrive any day now. India makes 60% of the world's vaccines and is home to several major manufacturers. Our India correspondent Niha Punya has more. After a long wait, South Africa will finally receive its first shipment of the COVID-19 vaccine from India this week. Government sources have told the SABC that the next commercial flight carrying the first consignment of COVID-19 vaccines to South Africa will fly out very soon. President Cyril Ramaphosa's government has signed an agreement with the Serum Institute, which is the world's largest vaccine manufacturer. It has been bulk producing the Oxford AstraZeneca shot here in India. Per the agreement, 1 million doses will reach South Africa this week and 500,000 will be flown out next month. Ahead of the first delivery, South Africa's health officials granted regulatory approval to the Serum Institute to supply the jab. But that was only half the battle won. Serum Institute also needed permission from the Indian government to begin commercial exports, which was granted over the weekend. Brazil and Morocco were the first to receive shipments. South Africa will be paying for the vaccine, unlike many shipments to India's neighboring countries, which will be covered by grants. The exact cost for each dose has not been confirmed, but some reports suggest the country will be paying just over $5 per dose. The high price, reports suggest, is because South Africa has been categorized as an upper-middle-income country. India itself has purchased 11 million doses of the Oxford jab from the Serum Institute for less than $3 a shot. India says while prioritizing domestic requirements, it will ensure there's a constant supply of COVID-19 vaccines to partner nations like South Africa in the coming months. South Africa is dealing with a new wave of infections as well as a more infectious strain of the COVID-19 virus. Neha Punia, New Delhi. 
The Restaurant Association of South Africa has handed over a memorandum of demands to the office of President Sil Ramaphosa. The association is calling for government to lift the ban on alcohol sales and transportation, as well as the curfew times. The association says the ban has left the industry crippled, as most of its revenue comes from alcohol sales. The alcohol ban was reintroduced in late December as part of reducing the spread of COVID-19 infections and reducing trauma cases at hospitals. Pumzilim Langin reports. The reintroduction of lockdown level 3 came with many restrictions, including the sale and transportation of alcohol and curfew times. Restaurant establishments are bleeding as a result of these restrictions. After failed attempts to engage with government officials, they are now taking the matter to the office of the president. They want the president to extend curfew hours as well as lift the ban on alcohol sales and on-site consumption. Rasa, CEO Wendy Alberts. We are here as a last attempt, a desperate attempt to speak to President Ramaphosa. We've been trying to speak to many ministerial divisions and we feel that a deaf ear has been turned on the critical state of the industry. And I think if anybody just takes a walk down any restaurant belt or node or promenade, you would notice that restaurants are empty. Restaurants have taken to close their restaurants permanently for the last time. And we are currently hovering around about 40 to 50 percent of closures. Some permanent, some will never be able to reopen their businesses. And in turn, it doesn't end there because there's a whole supply chain that um, rests off each restaurant. And those are also being affected. Rasa, together with other stakeholders, have also filed an urgent application in the Pretoria High Court to have the restrictions lifted. Albert say the restaurant industry seems to be the hardest hit and they can't bear it anymore. We feel so targeted. There isn't one aspect that we feel has been well managed outside of our industry. It just it just feel under constant attack and there's just every moment there is another economical issue that hits the restaurants and costs to us that we simply can't afford. So we just need to talk. Let's talk through this. Let's sit down and have these conversations. Restaurant owner Sean Baba has had to shut down several of his establishments as most of his revenue comes from alcohol sales. He believes the ban has given rise to the black market. Demand is not going anywhere. So for every regulated industry that you curtail or shut down or restrict, an unregulated industry will arise. You saw it with cigarettes. Now you're going to see it with alcohol again. People still need, you know, they still have the need to drink and to socialize. So rather let that happen in a regulated industry. The presidency has undertaken to respond within 14 days, which the industry is not happy about. That report by Pumzilim Langeni. Scientists around the globe are this week meeting to reflect on vaccine investment for HIV and the road towards additional prevention tools for the virus. The fourth HIV Research for Prevention Conference starting on Wednesday this year convenes virtually for the first time due to the global COVID-19 pandemic. Researchers will also shed light on how efforts and knowledge gained in the quest for an HIV vaccine have helped speed up the development of the desperately needed vaccine vaccine for COVID-19. For more on this, here's one of the conference chairs, Pontanio Kalibu, director of the Uganda Virus Research Institute. In this conference, I was mostly working on the part of the vaccines. I've been working on vaccines for a number of years, and actually now I'm one of the people leading one of the phase three efficacy trials of HIV vaccine that I started. But there's a lot of interest and I hope you can take interest in looking at how are we advancing in as, far as HIV vaccines uh, are concerned. And I think it will be interesting now because when COVID came and we have had 
vaccines for COVID using messenger RNA, using uh, vector vaccines. Uh, it has shown how science has really advanced to be able to address our uh, health challenges. Some of the concepts that have been used for COVID were developed uh, for HIV, but HIV will still have a few challenges. But COVID has shown us that the science we are doing is real, real science that can make a difference. There'll be presentations on how to design vaccines that can induce good neutralizing antibodies using tri uh, concepts or uh, constructs that are trying to uh, get the uh, real structures of the antibodies that are able to neutralize um, HIV. And there will be uh, some discussions around that. And of course, uh, what is going on as far as trials are concerned, from early trials to late trials, I hope you listen to the mosaic and all other uh, trials. And of course, we have had some disappointing stories, uh, the uh, HVT702 that have been disappointing. So I'm, I'm, I'm really uh, very excited. This is a, a good moment uh, to really reflect on where we have invested in vaccines and how they can help us push uh, towards having additional uh, prevention tools. That's the voice of Pontiano Kalibu, director of the Uganda Virus Research Institute. Many lessons have been learned this past year that are directly impacting habits in 2021, particularly when it comes to financial security. One area where fiscal prudency has become paramount is in the retirement sector, with people now seeking ways of both of both protect existing protecting existing savings, as well as ways to make it go much further. With the ever-increasing life expectancies and rising costs of living, it's always safest to put away as much as you can while ensuring all measures are in place to protect one's retirement savings. Phil Barker of uh, Rennie Shaw Property Developments spoke to Samora Mangesi to expand more on this topic. The fact is these are unusual times. And you need to start looking at things a little differently, reevaluate. And the biggest thing for all of us is, is planning. And financial planning is a huge one. Um, but I think when you, if you're looking at, in, at retiring in a gated estate, one of the things you've got to look at is to get into the best estate that you can afford. And um, one way of doing this is to have a look at a life rights model. And a life rights model, which we offer at Renishaw Hills, a type of life rights model, is you get a discount up front, but you sign a contract at the same time that you, when you dispose of your unit, you dispose of it to the developer at the same price you paid for it. So that gives you a nice discount and it allows you to get in up front at a slightly cheaper price. Mm, and... Uh... Is it important to consider the possibility of maximizing one's savings in these residential properties? Absolutely. You've got to look after your money, you know. And, and another part of that is saying, look, we realize that I'm going to be on fixed income going forward. So I need to do proper planning. And when you're going into these villages as well, look for one that gives you an all-inclusive levy. So you know exactly what you're going to be paying in future. And, and that makes planning so much easier. And at the same time, um, look for an estate that offers a levy stabilization fund. So they are all different systems. The way we do it here is that when a person disposes of his estate, at, uh, of his unit at Renishaw Hills, 
a portion of the profit that he makes goes into a levy stabilization fund that helps to keep everybody else's levies at an affordable level that don't increase above inflation. And uh, do you think the added costs like levies uh, are usually a turnoff for you know, investees? And what would you advise them with regards to that challenge? In terms of, of the levies and so on, you know, really they are simply replacing your normal levy, your, your normal expenses, your normal monthly living expenses, such as security, such as insurance, such as maintenance of your home, etc. What it, what it does when you go into a place where you understand that you have an all-inclusive levy, it simply makes the planning easier because it's always going to be the same price. How important is it for one to plan for health care during this phase of one's life? So that's a, that's a huge thing as you get older, isn't it? Everybody has uh, most of your medical expenses over your whole lifespan are in as you get older. So you've got to look at affordable health care. And um, the, the affordable health care model that we offer at Ronnie Shaw Hills is a home-based care model. So you have professionals that are looking after caregivers that if you need one hour's care a day, 12 hours care a day, 24 hours care a day, the professionals will be able to provide a caregiver that can give that at a much more affordable price than going into a, a, a hospital type situation that may be very expensive. Is it possible to plan for inflation and how to overcome this inevitable issue? I think, Samora, you know, inflation is with us and will always be with us. So it's a matter of planning for it and working around getting doing things affordable up front, like the life rights model, looking for the planning, um, the fixed amount of an all-inclusive levy, looking for something with the levy stabilization funds, looking for affordable health care. All of these things help to cover the inflationary effects of living expenses going forward. And that's Phil Barker, CEO of Renishaw Property Development, speaking to Samura Mangesi. Our economics update up next with Tavis Luhok. Hello. Farmers in Zimbabwe have raised alarm over excessive rains which have been pounding the country for the past weeks, resulting in flooding and leaching affecting the crops. Zimbabwe Commercial Farmers Union President Shadrick Makombe says that the rains had become counterproductive as the farmers continued to make losses by applying fertilizers which continuously get washed away by rain. Makombe says that too much rain comes with a cost to farmers. Botswana's ambassador to the United States, Ongokame Kizomugaila, says Botswana is grateful for the 4.65 million US dollars that the world's largest economy has pledged towards the country's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Mukaila says that there are opportunities that can arise from Botswana's relations with the U.S. in every sector of the economy. He says his diplomatic assignment includes managing Botswana's foreign relations with the United States, Canada, Mexico and Caribbean states by supporting interactions and engagements with those nations.
Hotels and a Catering Association of Zambia says supporting domestic tourism is key following the low foreign tourist inflows as the country and the rest of the world to grapple with coronavirus. Zambia and other Southern African countries have become banned from travelling to the United Kingdom in order to contain the spread of a new COVID-19 variant detected in South Africa. The countries are Angola, Botswana, Eswatini, Lesotho, Malawi, Mauritius, Mozambique, Namibia, Seychelles, South Africa, Zambia and Zimbabwe. Nigeria's biggest commercial lender, Axis Bank, has identified eight African countries for potential expansion into the coming years, including Namibia. If successful, competition is expected to be heightened in the country, since Axis Bank is said to be an aggressive institution. Axis Bank's ambition to branch out is aimed at benefiting from a continental free trade pact that gave its first breath on the 1st of January this year. Janet Yellen has been confirmed as the U.S. Senate as the first ever female Treasury Secretary. Yellen, who headed the U.S. Central Bank from 2014 to 2018, earlier won bipartisan support from members of the Senate Finance Committee. She will be responsible for guiding the Biden administration's economic response to the pandemic. The U.S. is struggling to rebound economically from the hit caused by the coronavirus pandemic. Yellen is expected to work differently to her predecessor, Stephen Mnuchin. The BBC's Michelle Fleury reports. Stephen Mnuchin is a former banker and film financier, and when Trump nominated him for the job, some questioned his credentials. By contrast, Janet Yellen is considered, if anything, overqualified. She is the first person ever who will have served as Treasury Secretary, Federal Reserve Board Chair and Chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisers. The single biggest task facing the Treasury Secretary, how to save the US economy. Stephen Mnuchin worked with Democrats to pass a large stimulus plan last spring. Now it will be the turn of Janet Yellen. One US dollar is trading at 382.99 Nigerian Nara. 1084 Botswana Pula, 10919 Kenyan Shilling, and 2132 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, we'll start in Brazil. One US dollar there is trading at 5 rubles 46 Russia, 75 rubles 31. India, 72 rupees 93. In China, dollar is changing hands at 61.47. And in South Africa, it's a trading at 15 rand 17. The US dollar is also trading at 73 pence to the British pound and 82 cents to euro. Gold, 1,859 dollars and platinum, 1,090 dollars per ounce, while brand crude oil is at 55 dollars or 50 cents a barrel. From an African perspective, Tune in to Vision 2030 with Una Pateke and Tabila Masugu, the new show revolving around the Sustainable Development Goals and Agenda 2030. Every Tuesday, 10 to 11 a.m. Central African Time. Connect with us on all social media platforms at Channel Africa One. Hashtag Vision 2030. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati.
In our sports update this hour, we begin with Olympic news. The International Olympic Committee, IOC President Thomas Bach, says the Tokyo Summer Olympic Games will be held as scheduled, with the top priority being the safety and security of participating athletes. The opening ceremony is scheduled for the 23rd of July this year, after being delayed from last summer due to global coronavirus pandemic. The health crisis is still ravaging many countries, with Japan currently going through severe restrictions amid its third COVID-19 wave. Bach said the IOC was looking at all possible measures to prepare for anything that could hinder the games from happening, ranging from immigration rules, quarantine rules, to social distancing and rapid testing. Organizers were forced to reiterate their commitment to holding the Olympic Games in July and August after a report on Friday said Japan's government had privately concluded that the games would have to be cancelled because of the pandemic. Meanwhile, the new season of the Kenya Volleyball Federation National League started last Saturday for the first time since Corona struck almost a year ago and is being played indoors. The change comes when the league calendar has also been revised in adherence to the international leagues. The Kenya Commercial Bank Volleyball Club head tactician Jafet Munala, who happens to be the assistant head coach of the Kenya National Women Volleyball Team, Malkia Strikers, acknowledges the challenges of shaping up the team for Tokyo 2020 Olympics. We are still going for Olympics, we are not just going to, go to participate, we are going to compete. We have competed in this World Championship as a, as a national team and we have seen where we belong, we have seen how far we have improved. And we hope when we go to Olympics, not going to be a participation team, a participating team, we are going to compete. And we hope to post good results at the Olympics. In the last two years, the Kenya national basketball team has experienced a marked improvement with the Morans finishing second in the 2019 Afro-China and then advancing to the 2021 FIBA Afro-Basket qualifiers. Cynthia Mumbo is the founder of the Vitikapu Elite a local basketball academy. If you don't have a functioning league, you don't have a, you don't have a federation. I mean, the league is existing, but why is the NBA followed and not the local? And Kenyans are extremely crazy about local stuff. We're crazy about local stuff. Why is it? Because we've not positioned ourselves in the minds of Kenyans. The Rwanda national football team, Amavubi, will be hoping to that they can finally find the back of the net when they take on Togo in the final Group C game of the African Nations Championship, Chan, ongoing in Cameroon. Rwanda has so far played two goalless matches against the Uganda Cranes and champions Morocco. Going into today's crucial tie, the Amavubi team, which is under the tutelage of Vincent Moshami, must ensure that they score goals and secure a win of any kind if they are to sail through the quarterfinals. Head coach Vincent Mashami is still optimistic that his goal-shy team have the ability to end their drought against the West African side today. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Taking us, uh, well, that wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzora Magaza, technical producer Wiseman Mangele, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or at Channel Africa One. Are taking us to the top of the hour. For the news is Pumoto's choice. <laughs>